Alright, welcome to the Inklecast. So it's been a little while since we did a sort of game theory, narrative theory episode. We've been sort of talking about other people's games quite a lot. Um, so today we're going to talk about a question that Joe raised a little while ago, which we thought was really interesting. We've come back to a few times, which is whether it's possible in a story-based game to have gameplay that's too compelling. Does that distract from the story? Does that kill your, your involvement in the story? Um, so we're going to dive right back into that one. So I'm Tom. I'm John. And I'm Joe. So, obviously, when you're making a story-based game, you have your two pillars, right? You have your gameplay, which is the thing that keeps the player coming back and gives them something to do and something to focus on and to think about. And you've got your narrative, which no one really knows what it's supposed to be for. Like, is it to entertain? Is it to be intriguing? Is it there to make you carry on playing when the game's got boring? Is it just interesting? Is it just because you want to say something? And you're trying to mesh these two things together. So I think everybody agrees that the best game narratives are the ones which complement mm. the gameplay itself. But, yeah, and yet there's always this, this tension between the narrative and the gameplay. And I think you can see little examples of it um, dating right back to when people would get annoyed with the length of cutscenes, for example. Like, there's... Um, when you have a five-minute cutscene and you have no interactivity and then you juxtapose that with a really fast action game, that's when people complain and get really annoyed because that change in pacing is just really jarring. Like, they get really bored in the cutscenes because of this expectation of interactivity that's been set up. Um, and I think... That is an issue um, to a lesser degree in other games as well. In my opinion, a lot of um, Telltale games suffer from this a little bit because there's not enough in interactivity to match um, the amount of cutscene content that they show. Right, so a lot of games will sort of solve this problem by basically just dividing up their gameplay and their cutscenes and let's do them completely different things. So here's the story, here's the game, and other people try to sort of wiggle it in so they're a bit closer, but normally mm. not. It's funny, isn't it? Because I bet cutscenes originated from mission briefings, actually. Like, the point of a cutscene from a game design point of view is to mm. tell you what it is you're supposed to do next. Mm. Like, that's the door. You need to get to the door, but there's this guy in the way, and there's that dragon, and there's a lever here, and that's the cutscene scene and the cutscene is just a nice way of doing that exposition mm. but somehow it's it's grown beyond that into something which we're supposed to enjoy in its own right yeah and the whole narrative we're supposed to enjoy in its own right mm. but I do know right right from when we started Inkle we had this idea that we wanted to really finely chop our kind of narrative and our interactions which is why we always talk about having really small amounts of text between choices because I mean, the text is kind of the equivalent of the cutscene. It's the narrative exposition that happens. And if you have too much text, too much kind of background exposition before you, before you give the player the chance to interact with um, the story, then it kind of starts to fall apart. What I really like about that as a philosophy as well is that that is exactly what you do in any other kind of writing in any medium. Like, exposition mm. is generally deathly. Mm. Like, if you're... There's a, a famous screenwriting... Um, adage, which is exposition as ammunition, and the point being that you should never deliver exposition ever, except in the context of an argument. So if you have two characters going, that's not what what you said when we got married 25 years ago, oh well that was different because then, and people yeah. are explaining all the information the player, the player, the, the audience needs to know, but in the context of something mm. loaded and charged and tense, mm. not 
just sitting down and telling you something. Mm, interesting. Whereas games are really bad at that because the exposition has got to be clear when it's saying, look, you really need to do this and you need to watch out for that and these are the important factors that you need to know. Mm. So one thing that I think is interesting about the games that we've made, um, especially 80 Days, um, and as we move more towards um, sort of games that have more game mechanics in them, because we started mm, yeah. our company with really narrative-heavy games and then slowly added game mechanics into them. And I guess there's this feeling that we have that perhaps if we, if we go too gameplay-heavy, then people will get distracted by that and not be interested in the story anymore. Do you think that's a risk? So... Yeah, we've discussed this before, haven't we, in the context of 80 mm. Days, of course. Like, I remember Tom was saying that he really wished that the markets in 80 Days were a bit more a bit more gamey and a bit more juicy like that. And my feeling at the time was that if we did that, people mm. would stop paying attention to the story because they'd be so busy running the numbers. And the funny thing about 80 Days is you still see a lot of players who are already there. They already are not paying that much attention to the story yeah. or that invested in it because they only care about the deadline. Mm. If they go over it, they want to restart. Mm. And that sense that the gameplay is preventing them from getting to the narrative. But then I guess the counter-argument for that is that those people would never have been interested in the narrative anyway. Yeah, because they're I just think, not interested in narrative. So I think there's two things there. I think there's, there's the fact that you need to get the balance between narrative and game mechanics right so that, 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 that they don't um, kind of um, overpower each other. But then there's also the point that I think different players are just different. And that there are some players who kind of try to ignore all of the game mechanics in 80 days and they would specifically say right I'm going to try to ignore the deadline the 80 days and I'm just going to go exploring around the world visiting the different locations I won't worry too much about my luggage I just want to meet different people find out what the, the stories are in the different parts of the world and then there's the type of player who really tries to maximize um their score or minimize in this case they tried they you know they managed to get 25 days um they managed to go all the way around the world in, in 25 days but why are they playing our game in for order that to experience, for that experience yeah, yeah. i wonder my find is the really weirdest example of this is in is actually in the big rpgs that are really popular because obviously they have a massive market which is spread across lots of different kinds of players and there must be players who play, you know, The Witcher or Mass Effect or whatever, and they min-max their stats and they really think very carefully about their lay their loadouts and their armor mm. combinations and all that sort of thing. But when I play a game like that, because I'm not particularly interested in stat balancing, I tend to ignore it. I just do whatever the game tells me is the best thing to do, and I do it, and I don't really understand how the combat system works or what my choices have done within that combat framework. And I play for the story, and that is definitely not unusual. There are definitely a lot of people who don't really think about what the stats are actually doing. They just like to get a plus one because they think that means they're doing better. And that's mm -hmm. the extent of their interaction. Mm. And yet the amount of game mechanics in a game like that is really large, actually. Yeah. The amount of numerical information flying backwards and forwards is really large, which then players completely ignore. Like, So is that an aesthetic thing which just makes you feel like you're doing something clever when you're not? Or is it a conscious, I'm just going to look straight through those numbers? Or is it actually, think, am I missing something? Are I think perhaps helped by these numbers in a way that I'm not giving them credit for? Perhaps for some people, these numbers are actually quite descriptive. You know, when they see that their strength has is, you know, 18 plus a 5 modifier, they go, they just get this feeling in their heads. That actually illustrates um, a picture in their mind of what their character is like. And that that's just a form of storytelling, in fact. Mm. Um, and when you have enough of those stats, and if you're 
interested in storytelling in that form, then maybe that does build up a picture in some people's heads. Yeah, well, I, I can believe that for a segment of the market, but I can't <laughs> believe that for the majority of the market. All right, so here's a controversial answer to that, is that actually the gameplay is sort of rubbish, and it's sort of opaque, you can't really understand what's going on, so players don't try, and it's maybe the same in 80 days, because the actual game layer isn't massively tight, it's not particularly predictable, you can't really game it that well, mm. That's what allows you to really engage with the story, because like the the game mechanics just sort of get out of the way, and like if there's a monster in your high level, you can probably just kill them. It takes a bit of time. It's the same in eighty days. You can kind of just sort of knock your way around the world. Oh, that you know that guy's got a violin. I'll buy it. I'll sell it. You don't have to pay it's too funny, much. Funny when you say that, that sounds like an incredibly controversial thing to say, and like you'll have people go, "What are you admitting that your game mechanics are bad?" But actually, definitely during the construction of eighty days and also sorcery, I've argued like you know, numerous times that the game mechanics don't matter that much so long as they appear to work. Mm. Mm. I like to think that they also work, but they yeah. don't actually need to and I don't expect anyone to test it. Yeah, I mean, like, this is a lot that you can't take them out entirely. Like, if you took out the market mm. system entirely from 80 days, which I, mean, I have wondered before, but how do you do that? I'm sure it would be a far worse game because it's a good incentive to go somewhere because mm. you have this violin that's worth something in Budapest. You go to Budapest and that informs e your decision. And even if that's just as an alternative thing to do other than click the explore button, because explore button mm. is just they give me a chunk of story. And the fact that there's other stuff to do there in the town is kind of evocative to the t mm. situation that you're in. Mm. in so way. it's almost like not a game mechanic as a game mechanic at all, but really choices as a, as a sort of offering of flavour and tone. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm always arguing that I don't like the phrase mechanics because I think it's too, it's too reductive. And I guess this is an example of that, in that what mm. we're doing is presenting choices to create the sense of exploring a city. Mm. And quite what those buttons do is this sort of hastily delivered afterthought <laughs> just to make everything hang together. Mm. So that brings us back to our opening question, I guess, that can you have gameplay which is too compelling? Can you have mm. gameplay which is so good that it just means your so, narrative breaks? Or is that a failure of the people well, who make so a I good think, game? Well, so I think there's other... I, I almost think that there's there, there are other ways to frame the question, because another small example is of the combat in Sorcery, where you're too busy playing the actual game of looking at the different power bars to bother to read the text sometimes. Like, um, we hope that people do read the text and they almost certainly will read the tell, which is at the bottom of every little chunk, but we can't always expect everyone to read every word of the combat text. Mm. Um, I guess my feeling with the combat text, and I had to write the whole damn thing, so this is painful, <laughs> is that I don't expect people to read it, but I like the idea they might occasionally look at it and be pleased, yes. and that's it, that's yes. all it wants yeah. to do, is just deliver moments of delight. So that's an interesting point of balance there, where mm. we're, where the player is focusing more on the gameplay right. than on the narrative. And the narrative but, is falling away a little bit. But that's okay, because it's a procedural narrative, which isn't as kind of as perfectly authored as um, yeah. you know the the true narrative when you're when you're before and after exactly. those combat sections. Though I wonder but... that sometimes that kind of thing is a bit too it's a bit too subtle to really work properly. Like in eighty days, those conversation system that when you talk to someone on a journey and you get the two heads, that's a procedural conversation in that mm. it's built out of very simple templates. And the mm. point of that section is definitely not the dialogue. But you do mm. see the occasional review that says 
well, I thought the conversations there weren't as good as the rest of them. And you kind of go, <laughs> they're really not. <laughs> like, they're really not as good. Yeah. We know that. Did we need to put a label on it? Should we have done it in a chunkier font or yeah, something? Yeah, put a title bar you know. saying, this is not proper storytelling, we're aware of it. Or maybe we literally should have had characters say, blah, 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 Tokyo, blah, 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 Yokohama. Well, yeah, and, you know, not yeah. Not try to hit that uncanny valley. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. It is an uncanny valley, actually. Yeah, that's well, true. I can probably offer a viewpoint on the sorcery question that you raised. As a player, so I've never really worked on any of the sorcery games, I had very little involvement at all. And I do exactly that, I don't really read any of the text in fights. I rarely but occasionally do glance just to get a bit of context about what they'll do, but because it's not entirely transparent, you still have to do a bit of guesswork, I tend to just ignore it entirely. Mm. Um, I don't particularly feel that that sort of ruins my enjoyment mm. of it, but I do think it's a pretty good example of where the mechanics are so strong that it overpowers the, the narrative. The narrative is sort of, even though it is actually integrated, it makes them feel redundant. But that's not necessarily a bad thing in that context. I guess that's exactly the point, isn't it? Yeah. On the one hand, yes, the gameplay has beaten the narrative at that point, but it's kind of by design and we're sort of okay with that. Yeah, yeah I think if you're, you know, if you're clearly aware, with it, aware of it and the game has been designed with that awareness in mind, I think it's all right, but it's yeah. definitely dangerous if you were to try to design a game mm with really sort of really strong, fun mechanics and then try to get this really great story at the top and not realise that people might not care about the story. So I guess, to stick on Sorcery just for the moment, what about the dice game? Because the dice mm. game, again, has mechanics mm. but the conversation is built directly into it. I would argue that when I play the dice game, and obviously I'm biased, I am much more closely watching the text of that conversation. I do read it. I don't let it decide what moves I make in the game, but I definitely process it and read it. Yeah, it's did actually, you find that's that? That's definitely true. Yeah, interesting. In my head, I think so. I remember at one point you tried doing a little roguelike game just in your spare time where you oh, yeah. sort of move around and there would be narrative like at every square or something. Mm. And I was pretty convinced when you started doing it that it wouldn't work for exactly the reason of this dilemma, which is because you're constantly tapping on the keyboard to move around the board and you're sort of you're really engaged in this really strong loop of move, assess, move, assess, if you just kind of interrupt that gameplay constantly with a bit of narrative, players are going to skip it because that's their frame of mind right now is just keep doing this loop. And as soon as you insert some content there, they're going to just want to discard it in the same Get way. Get out of the way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so if you've got a game that's a little bit, I mean, that's that's sort of quite similar to the combat. Maybe the dice is perhaps a bit more slow paced, like, you know, the dice rolls take a bit of time. There's fewer decisions mm. to make. Yeah. yeah, and you have to actually consider your options a little bit more, whereas when you're just walking across a board, uh, just sort of waiting for something to appear out of the fog of war, you can just mash the button. Um, so I think that's definitely true. I think it's sort of the pacing of your gameplay informs the pacing yeah. that you're allowed from your narrative. I, I guess the conclusion for me then is that it's all just a matter of balance um, and that there is a risk um, that the narrative and the game may not work and kind of sing together, but it's always a matter of making sure that in every specific instance of gameplay and narrative that those two components work well together. Yeah, I suppose in telegraphing to the player what the expectation should be yeah. for this section of the game. Yeah. I think one other example that I, I wanted to bring up was the Banner Saga, just mm -hmm. maybe as a final example, because obviously that has its combat mechanic, which is very, mm. it's basically very technical, mm. and then it has its narrative sections, which are very, very narrative, and it mm. completely dissociates the two. That's true. It kind of tries to give you a sense that what happens in combat affects the story, but I don't think that actually happened in the game. I think okay. that was, there was a, a rigged example of that early on in the story, but I think it was rigged. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I found that that didn't work for me. I liked the game, but I hated the fact that those two things were so 
dissociated yeah. from yeah. each other. That stopped me playing it. It's like I just really didn't like and the I'm, combat. Just looking at it, is that a fixable problem in that in that game? Is it just a question of better UI to make it clear? Is it a question of smoother? Things I mean, I think I think that for me that just, does that's what the game is like. Mm, I think for me that does fit into um, my conclusion of balance. I think potentially that kind of thing could be fixed by changing the ratio or something between okay. the amount, maybe reducing the dialogue sections or kind of sprinkling them a little bit into the board game itself yeah. so that they get mixed up a little bit more. Yeah, because or... I guess my feeling would be to put a few more stats on the cho story choices so that they feel a bit more integrated into the game right. yeah. and then put a bit of dialogue into the fights so exactly. that when people are fighting exactly. they're talking. Yeah. But I don't know if that gets back to Tom's comment on the roguelike game that right. if I'm doing that combat, would I just ignore everything they yeah. say during I mean, the fight? I my, it's probably my favourite genre is the genre that in my head they sort of failed that with Advanced Wars and Fire Emblem are my very favourite games and they are still definitely the genre kings so that's turn based tactics turn based tactics yeah. exactly but they are such I don't really have a good word for this like gamey games like you really can work everything out they're very strategic but they are almost like the most gamey you know they descend from chess quite directly um, so trying to knit a story into that directly I think is a really hard ah, thing to that, do. That hits a really interesting idea. When I think about what I, my brain is doing when I'm doing chess I'm quite often saying well I'm going to put this one there which will cause him to do that and me to do that and her to do that and me to do that and I'm going several steps forward mm. then rewinding then trying a different version then rewinding so if I was trying to process a narrative at the same time that forward backwards in time that I'm doing in my head is really fighting against the story because well I, I, mm. I do these moves and something will happen in the story but I don't know what but then I rewind it again so I just threw that away and those are two very different kinds of thought, whereas in a narrative, when yeah. things happen, they should really have happened. That's really So I wonder if the problem with a tactics-based narrative mashup is I want to be just saying, what am I doing now? In the story, what am I doing now? In the game, what am I doing now? Right. When I start to look ahead and roll back, maybe that's fighting against the narrative yeah. a bit think, too hard. That's I think potentially also the, the details of the way that narrative is presented and the context is really important as well, because... Mm. Um, as you said, you, you, your brain is thinking about a certain thing, and I think none of us are very good at multitasking to the extent that we can both read and plan a move on a board game simultaneously. Um, and so we've been talking a lot of recently about whether you can combine voiceover with other mechanics because it's, it's something that can happen in the background where your brain's vaguely aware of it, but you can also multitask and do other and things at the same time. That it's passive, it's telegraphed, yes. it's being yeah, passive. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I think jumping on, sorry, we should probably wrap up. No, I've go got one it. final point to make. So jumping on from what you were saying about the, the sort of the level of thinking you're doing when you're playing the Banner Saga and how that does sort of fight a little bit with any narrative, uh, an example that I always give of uh, a game that combines the two really strongly is Papers, Please. So Papers, Please, as a game, is very obviously just spot the difference. You just have to compare the thing. And that's a pretty simple game. There's not much thinking to be done. You just have to kind of compare until you spot it. Um, so they add a sort of a timer to that to make it um, tense. But there's your game. And because there's actually no strategy, you're not really thinking ahead at all, the, the game, which is definitely fun, like Spot the Difference is a great game, but it's not that involving, it allows the story to still sink in. You're not being too distracted from it, and it obviously helps a lot that contextually it fits in. Um, but it doesn't overwhelm... Right, the, so it's exactly your, that thing that you, you're sorry, operating yeah. now. You're operating right in the present moment. You're not kind of looking ahead into the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't yeah. think I ever looked at it quite through that lens, which is really, really interesting. It is an interesting mm -hmm. idea. I've never thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, yes. folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, with that, we'd better wrap up. 
till we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.